So let me introduce you to our church in case you're new. By the way, if you are new, welcome. It is no small thing to come to a church for the first time. And so we'll ask you later to stand up and tell us your deepest, darkest secrets. Um, but that comes in a little bit. So um, let me share, you, share with you about, a, about our church. We, we actually don't do that. Just to, I know there's three people who have left already, but we, we don't do that. Um, so we believe there's, there's kind of these three movement, uh, three-part movement that we see in Scripture uh, about what does this thing called a Christian life look like. And, uh, Tino, can you close that door? Thank you. I've lost the first page of my sermon six times now. Um, so the first thing is that there's hope beyond our brokenness. So right now, with all of your doubts, with all of your failures, with all of your wounds, with everything that's going on in your life, you're welcome here. So there's hope for you right now in the middle of your brokenness. And at the exact same time, there is hope beyond it, meaning that God is going to transform you. God is going to renew you. God is going to change you. He's doing that work in you right now. So you're welcome, just as you are. And also, God, God's will, his intention, his plan is to remake you, to renew you, to resurrect you. Second, we believe that we are called to trust in a Savior who's risen and alive. So we're not big fans of religion. Religion says perform, pretend that you're good, paint the white picket fence of your reputation. That's not what we're doing here. What we're doing is learning how to trust God who is alive and present in our midst. And that takes all of your courage, all of your honesty, all of your energy and your effort. It, it's to engage with God in a relationship, not to perform for him. Third, we believe that just as you are right now, you are called to make a difference with the people that you live with, your roommates, your family, your kids, your grandkids, your classmates, to the people that you meet at Vons and Rite Aid and the place you're going to have lunch with next, that you're called right now to minister to them, to bless them, to bring restoration to our community. Amen? Amen. So Anne-Marie doesn't have a seminary degree. And Anne-Marie uh, isn't a biblical expert. But Anne-Marie has chosen to bring restoration to you. Because that's what deacons do. And so... Uh, so like Anne-Marie, we make the choice, Jesus, I'm going to be about your business, which is to make this world into a beautiful place. Amen? Amen. So that's, that's what we believe. Now, each one of those things, hope beyond our brokenness, trust in our risen Savior, restoration for our community, those all have choices that we get to make each and every day. And so this is the choice that we make. Let's read this together. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to seek Jesus first and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. And so today, today's passage is all about that choice. It's all about that choice today. And so 
that's that's what we're going to be. We're final. We're final. We're finishing up our sermon series on the book of Joshua. Next week, next week we're going to start the Gospel of John, um, and we'll be in the Gospel of John for from now until 2024. And uh, no, it's not. Won't be that long. Um, so, so before we do anything else, let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you so much for your amazing presence during worship, and we pray your protection over this time now in Jesus' name. We pray your blessing. We pray your help. God, we bind up and silence everything opposed to Jesus that would be seeking to distract this time. We thank you for all the kids next door and their parents watching the Purim play and and how they're going to learn about the story of Esther and the work that you're doing in the middle of our lives, even in difficult times. So, Lord, we just thank you for the ministry that is happening in our church, for your presence here. And we ask more, please, more, please, during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeff, Jeff Berkstaller, can you close the back doors? Thank you. And turn the heater on, please. Yes. <clears throat> we started the... We, and Tino, if you can crack that door rather than have it wide open, that'd be great. Just crack it just a little bit. We'll get some cross breeze. Okay, so we started this uh, sermon series with a powerful statement by professor and theologian James K.A. Smith, and it goes like this. Read this with me. We are what we love because we live toward what we want. Remember that? I argued that the most important question which determines the shape of our present and our future then flows from this statement. And it goes like this. So what do you want? Because what we want or what we love is not primarily determined by what we think. What we want and what we love is formed and shaped by what we do. Does that make sense? So I encouraged you, naturally, to start practicing spending time with God each and every day. That you would start building into the rhythm of your life practices where you would connect with Jesus. So that what you do shapes what you want, which shapes what you love, which shapes your life. Now, your character and your relationships and the trajectory of your life is formed by what you want and what you love and therefore what you do. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, what happens when you want something that can't bear the weight of your soul? And some of us, have I shouldn't say some, all of us have found this out. We want love or success or comfort so bad that we start orienting the practices of our life to find or achieve or get this great love of ours. Amen? We want to be successful at work. We want to be successful in our jobs. We want to find the perfect mate. We want to have a gorgeous body. We want to have more than one ab like me, right? Like we want these things. And so we begin to form and shape our lives around these things. And then what do we... What do we discover? We discover is that we can actually get what we want. Discipline, hard work, commitment, you actually get it. And it's horrific once you get it. Why? Because you realize that it doesn't satisfy you. You realize that more money doesn't make you more happy. That more love, more relationships, more whatever 
It never satisfies you because it cannot bear the weight of your soul. And then you look back at this journey that you've just taken and you look at the cost that it's had upon your marriage or upon your relationships or upon your relationships with your kids or your grandkids or, or how, what it's done to your body. And you go, oh my gosh, this is awful. Well, that's where the book of Joshua starts. It starts because Israel has been wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness because they don't want to trust God. They, they think that, that their own power, their own decisions, their own wisdom, their own pride can bear the weight of their soul, and it can't, and they're dying in a pile. And Joshua, bless him, is one of the few leaders in Scripture who continually makes the choice to love and pursue God. And so over the past seven weeks, we've seen our spiritual ancestors start to trust God under Joshua's leadership. And what happens when Israel starts to put the weight of their soul on God Almighty? Miracles happen. Rivers dry up. Walls come tumbling down. Right? Massive armies are defeated that they could never defeat on their own. The promised land is finally settled. And so today is a, a sermon in Joshua chapter 24. It's going to be the last message that Joshua will ever speak to his Israelites. He's 110 years old. He's in the last year of his life. He's gathered all the Israelites at this sacred place called Shechem. And he wants to speak to them the most important message he has. Are you ready? Here we go. Let's read together. Joshua 24, verse 1. Then Joshua summoned all the tribes, including their elders, leaders, judges, and officers. So they came and presented themselves to God. Now, what are we skipping here? Because we left off at chapter 7 or 8. What are we skipping? We're skipping more miracles. We're skipping um, more battles One. We're skipping uh, a talking donkey. <laughs> Go and read that. That's an awesome one. Um, and then there's about 15 chapters of basic administrative instructions as all the different tribes talk to or settle in their areas. Okay, so that's what we're skipping. Now, chapter 24, Joshua summoned everybody to this place. What's unique about this place? Why do they show up here? Shechem is sacred ground. This is the place where salvation history starts. It's at Shechem that Abram, this Iraqi herder, is walking around with his sheep, and God says to Abram, Hey, you. Yeah, you. I'm God, and I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to save you. And that's where it all starts in Shechem. Shechem is the place when and Jacob and Esau, these are Abraham's great-grandchildren. When Jacob and Esau, they're, um, I should say, grandchildren, when they're fighting and they've been at war with each other for years, and Jacob finally comes to Esau and he apologizes. And Esau forgives him. And Jacob stacks a pile of rocks together. That's called a Ebenezer, right? That's at Shechem. Shechem is the place last year, remember, or last week, remember the story of Achan? The guy who thought he could get away with hiding stuff and it just caused so much death. Um, when 
all of that was exposed and that was taken care of. Joshua brought everybody back to Shechem. They rededicated their lives to God and, and then victory and more miracles took place afterwards. So Shechem is holy. Shechem is this incredible place. And it's just in the foothills of, uh, along the, the River Jordan there. Very similar to Paso Robles. <laughs> Not kidding, right? Okay, so they show up to Paso Robles. Then what does God, Joshua say? Verse 2. Joshua said to the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Now, I want you to pay attention to, the, to what God is saying, and I'm going to overemphasize this so that you pick up what God's putting down. Okay, Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates rivers, and they worshipped other gods, right? So the Euphrates flows through Iraq, so they are Iraqis. They worshipped other gods. Verse 3, I love this. But I took your ancestor Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him into the land of Canaan. I gave him many descendants through his son Isaac. So God keeps on saying what? I. Look, you were lost. I found you. You were a wandering Iraqi nomad. I plucked you out and saved you. Verse 4. Pay attention. To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau, I gave the mountains of Seir, while Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. Do you see it? Jacob and Esau is a hopeless story, full of famine and barrenness. God is saying, when there was famine and barrenness in your life, I was there. I delivered. I provided life when there was nothing. Verse 5. Then, read with me, I sent Moses and Aaron. Put the emphasis where it belongs. And I brought terrible plagues on Egypt. And afterward, I brought you out as a free people. But when your ancestors arrived at the Red Sea... The Egyptians chased after you with chariots and charioteers. So here they're in slavery, and God is saying, look, when disaster strikes your life, I'm bigger than the disaster. Next verse, read with me. When your ancestors cried out to the Lord, I put darkness between you and the Egyptians. I brought the sea crashing down on the Egyptians, drowning them. With your very own eyes, you saw what I did. Then you lived in the wilderness for many years. Almost. What is God saying? Look, when you were stuck in slavery, I freed you. When you were between a rock and a hard place, right? The Egyptian army and the Red Sea, I delivered you. And when you were totally rebellious and wandering on your own, even then, in the wilderness of your life, I provided daily manna to sustain you. Verse 8, finally, I brought you into the land of Amorites on the east side of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I destroyed them before you. I gave you victory over them, and you took possession of their land. I brought you into this land. I gave you victories. The verses continue. For the next five of them, if we would read, it's just God saying the exact same thing over again. He's recounting his faithfulness in each verse. The hero of this story is... Yes. And then he finishes this section by telling this amazing statement to his people. I gave you the land you had not worked on. I gave you towns you did not build. 
the towns which you are living now, I gave you vineyards and olive groves for food, though you did not plant them. Your life has been and will always be defined by God's grace. Say that with me. My life has been and will always be defined by God's grace. You're a child of grace. You are defined by God's choice to love you. When pain invades your life, God is there making a way for his blessing to continue. When we're lost in our foolishness, God is there to have mercy on us and bring us home. When we're stuck in slavery, God frees us. When we're finally in his presence and willing to trust him, he then pours out upon our life everything that we could never earn and everything that we don't deserve. Amen? Amen. We're not used to this kind of treatment. Say, I know. We don't know what to do with this kind of blessing. We're much more familiar with earning our own way, with being diligent to obey all the rules, so we stay out of trouble. And tragically, some of us are used to being totally ignored or betrayed or left behind. Last week, I was finishing a very long process with Sierra Vista Medical Center. And Sierra Vista Medical Center has a program where if you spend 10% of your income on uh, medical costs, that you can apply for a grant to help pay for a medical bill. So last year, it, uh, our son Levi was hospitalized, and, and we got the bill, um, and it was holy Moses. And so um, in my family, if you noticed this morning, I have five stitches over my left eye. Um, I threw Levi over my shoulders in a, in a swimming pool and his heel connected with my eye. That's the second time I've gotten stitches in two months. Um, so it's not hard for my family to, to spend 10% of our annual income on, on medical expenses. So I was like, I think I qualify for this grant. And so um, every single month, I would talk to the Sierra Vista medical finance uh, people, and I would say, hey, look, I, I'm, I'm following the directions that you have. I'm gathering every single physical receipt of medical expenses I've uh, in this last year. It's going to take some time, but I'm doing that. And they said, fine, it's great, it's wonderful. And so then I created this beautiful, collated, organized, gorgeous packet and, and well, my taxes and my bank accounts, and I'm qualified, qualified, qualified. I'm like, I'm going to get this grant. And I sent it all off, and I was so excited. I was so relieved. I was like, yes, I did it. And I walked out to the mailbox, and I opened up the mailbox, and there was a letter from the collections department saying that Sierra Vista Medical Center had sent me to collections. <laughs> Don't worry. It's all getting sorted out. I'm sure I'll get the grant, and I'm sure they'll send me to collections after the bill is paid, because this is what bureaucracies and corporations do. <laughs> right? That's what happens. I'm used to this kind of treatment, right? They don't know what the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. They ignore you until you can't give them the blood that they demand. And then when you diligently follow directions, their directions, they crush you randomly, right? It's not personal. It's just business. 
This is what bureaucracies and corporations do. Now here's my confession. Sometimes I treat God like he is a bureaucracy, like he's running some giant corporation. And I expect God to act like this, to act like Sierra Vista Medical Center, where maybe the mercy department and the judgment department aren't really talking, the memos aren't really going, and so like I'm trying to stay on God's good side, but hoping that like collections doesn't come. I imagine God sometimes, he's like the CEO of the biggest business in the world. Look, and he doesn't dare mess with the angels running each department, even if they're kind of slow, because the last time that he did, there was a labor dispute, and his vice president quit and started Evil Incorporated, and we all know how that turned out, right? Um, so... So it feels like that sometimes where it's like, man, God, are you really paying attention? I mean, you're like busy with stuff all across the world, you know, like why would you bother with little old me? Which means that what does God expect of me? Like if I view God like he's a corporation or, or a bureaucracy, then basically what I need to do is keep my minimum payment up so I'm in good standing. Does that make sense? Which means that I'm pretty much alone down here. Because God's too busy up there to pay attention to little old me. Right, so what, that, what does that mean practically? That means that if I keep my account up to date, then I'm safe from the judgment department. And that means that it's up to me to run my life, and that's kind of what we're used to. We're used to earning our own way. We're used to playing by the rules. And so we'll love our family, and we'll do the right things, and we'll be good people. And, and what about our relationship with God? Well, we keep that account up to date by calling in once a month and saying, I'm not going to go to collections, right? <clears throat> right? Now, if God is a bureaucracy, that would be a great strategy to, be, to have your relationship with God be in the clear. But God is not a bureaucracy. God is a person. God is not a corporation or a government. God is a person. And God wants you. God is jealous for you. God is in love with you like, like a faithful spouse. God isn't interested in a lousy marriage filled with secrets and infidelity. God wants you, wants your heart fully. So Joshua tells his people, so fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols of your ancestors, your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. And, and God, Joshua knows his people, you know, as he's walking through their camps, he can see inside their tents. And what does he see? He sees the gods of the Amorites and the Egyptians. Right? So he sees this, and he sees that what Israel is doing is kind of like what we do, right? We say, well, we treat God like he's a, like a spice tray, right? Well, a little bit of Egyptian on there and throwing some Amorite heat, and, oh yeah, some Yahweh to make it all rounded out, and then I'm good, right? But God's a person, you can't spice up your marriage with multiple husbands and wives and expect your spouse to be delighted. 
Amen? Amen. It doesn't work like that. So Joshua calls them out. Serve the Lord alone. Now this word fear, this is not the word terror. This is, the, the word in Hebrew is called yare. Say that with me. Yare. And yare means to be in awe. Look, the God who created everything that is bothers himself with you. That should give you yare. Awe. The God who holds everything together pays attention to your every need. What? What? Yeah, that's our God. God, God adores you. Now, this reality changes your life whether you like it or not. You can't hide anymore. Sorry. Look, you can't pretend that God doesn't exist or that God's not seen every single part of your life. That strategy won't work. Bummer. And given God's long track record of wanting you and choosing you and loving you, Joshua is saying, look, give your whole heart to God because God has given his whole heart to you. So Joshua then speaks words that we know. Some of you have things up in your house that say this verse, but I want you to pay attention to the context because Christian kitschy artwork sometimes takes this out of context, but notice the context. Ready? Here we go. Read this with me. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Make a choice. Make a choice. Why is Joshua pushing the Israelites to make a choice? Well, because right now, they're, they've... they've think that they've slid into this perfect little um, uh, bureaucratic loophole, which is that if you don't make a choice, then you're safe. If you choose all of them, then, then you've got your bases covered. It's like getting multiple insurance policies. We're not really sure which God will work, so we say yes to all of them. And Joshua is saying, no, God's not a bureaucracy. God is not a corporation. This isn't about an insurance policy. God is a person. Make a choice. They think they can do whatever they want. And gosh, Joshua is saying, look, that's not going to work. Make a choice. So let's look at Joshua's choice. He says, as for me and my family. Another translation would be, as for me and my house, we will choose to serve the Lord. Joshua has made a choice to lead the people in his house to serve God. So what does that look like for you to, serve, to, to lead the people that are living in your home, living in the sphere of your influence, to serve and love God? What would that look like? 
Now, it doesn't matter if you're divorced, doesn't matter if you're married, doesn't matter if you're single, widowed, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have roommates, doesn't matter if you're living in a strange situation. You all live in a home. You have a home that you belong to, right? So what does it look like for you in that context to serve God? Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking, I, I don't know how to do that. It doesn't really matter anyways. I mean, people are going to do what they're going to do. And here's what I need you to understand. The moment that you discount the significant impact and power, that you, that's the moment that you've bought the lie from the enemy. You are way more powerful than you give yourself credit. You are a child of God. You have God's Holy Spirit in you. Stop downplaying the significant impact that you have on the people around you. Your choices matter. And where you lead, if you lead, how you lead, it impacts everybody around you. So how do you do that? Well, Noreen, every single week, teaches you how. When she prays scripture over your kids. That's where you can start. Start by blessing the people in your home every day. Look, and if it would be awkward because you're 19 years old and it would be awkward, you're a dude and you're like, I don't really think the other dudes in my house are going to be like super excited. Let me bless you, man. Like, <laughs> you, you can pray on your own. You'd be, be fine. You'd be like, no, no, no. Let me pray for you before you head out the door here. I know you're going to go work out. Lord, help this guy get swollen and big. You know, like you don't have to do that, right? You can be thoughtful and creative about it. it look, if you do have kids, 1,000% put your hands on them each and every day and say, Lord Jesus, bless my children. Pray for your kids while you drive them to school, right? If you have grandkids, do not let a week go by without texting them, without calling them to pray for them, to care for them. How many of us, even as old as we are, would just love it if our parents called us and said, I'm so proud of you. I love you. Can I pray for you? You know, we would just, oh, that would mean the world to us. And that's the power and influence that you have. Don't discount it. Make a choice. As for me in my house, as the sphere of influence that I have, I'm going to serve the Lord. So how do the people respond? Well, they respond like we would respond, right? Joshua just says, look, make a choice. Are you going to serve these other gods? What are you going to do? Like, make a choice. And so we don't want to get in trouble with the people leading us. And so we tell them the answers that they want to hear, right? So here, let's read this together. The people replied, oh, we would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. No, no, no. Before the Lord, our God is the one who rescued us and our ancestors from slavery in the land of Egypt, dot, 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 a bunch of uh, malarkey. It was the Lord who drove out the Amorites and other nations living here in the land. So we too will serve the Lord for he alone is our God. Of course, Joshua, I'm going to do the right thing. Of course. The only problem is, is that they're saying this while they're worshiping other gods. They literally have idols of other gods set up in their tents. Joshua's walking by me like, mm-hmm, okay. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Our friend from seminary and college, Christy Lang, uh, 
she has two younger siblings, and uh, one day, Mama Lang, uh, Christy's mom, walks in, and, and Rob and Julie are like four and five, and they got into the Hershey's chocolate sauce. <laughs> you know, and they're like pouring it into their mouth, right? And like pouring it into bowls and like, you know, licking it up, and they have, they have chocolate sauce all over their hands. And so Mama Lang comes in and says, Hi, sweeties. What's going on? And immediately, the, you know, they're four and five. They look down and they go, nothing. <laughs> and Mama Lang says, Rob, Julie, have you been into the chocolate sauce again? No. I would never do that. I serve Yahweh alone. <clears throat> And of course, Mama Lang, <laughs> she's dying laughing on the inside. She just, she's keeping a straight face. <clears throat> but, you know, Rob and Julie, they're just they're covered in their face with chocolate sauce. And they think, oh, we're getting away with this. We got this. She can't see our hands. <clears throat> That's you. That's me. There's no hiding anymore. There's no hiding. No hiding. Like, don't pretend anymore. You got chocolate sauce all over your face. <laughs> so then Joshua, like a good parent, he tells them a hard truth that they don't want to hear, but it's true. This sounds harsh, but I'm going to explain why it's true. So stay with me. Then Joshua warned the people, you're, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's holy and jealous. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you abandon the Lord and serve other gods, he will turn against you and destroy you, even though he has been so good to you. So let me explain this. Let's take it sentence by sentence. You are not able to serve the Lord, for he's like, he's like a jealous spouse. He wants all of you. He's not going to be satisfied with infidelity. That's not a good marriage. So why can't they serve Yahweh? Because they're serving other gods as well. They got chocolate sauce all over their hands and their face, and what they're insisting is, I'm not doing anything wrong. There's no problems here. If you won't admit that you're actually saying, well, I want a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of money and a little bit of power and a little bit of good looks, and I'm going to worship all of these things. If you won't admit that that's what you're actually doing, then you can't serve God because you're not open to actually speaking the truth about what you're actually doing. Does that make sense? You won't, and therefore you can't. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. Why is that true? It's true because if you don't think you're doing anything wrong, then you're never going to ask for forgiveness. Look, God is saying, I want to forgive you. And you're saying, okay, well, go ahead. And you're saying, God says, okay, ask. And you're saying, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. Just give it to me. No. Like, to receive forgiveness means you've got to have something that you've done wrong that you admit to, and then you'll be forgiven. But if you don't ever ask for it, God can't 
give it to you. Make sense? Now, if you abandon the Lord and serve other gods, he'll turn against you and destroy you. What does that mean? Well, this is the concept of God's wrath. Look, God's wrath is, is not God actively seeking to make your life worse. God's wrath is letting you fully have exactly what you want. Sin doesn't need any more. Uh, look, sin is death. We talked about that last week. And so when you make a choice for sin, God says, okay, you, you really want that? Uh-huh. You really want to go your own way? Yep. Are you sure? Yeah, I don't need you, God. I'm fine. It's 10 minutes on Sunday. We're good. I got this. You sure? Yep. I'm going to go my own way. I know what to do. I've lived 40 years. I have all the wisdom I'll ever need right now. I know. I got it. So God says, okay, Andy, go for it. And I get to suffer the full consequences of what I've, what I've done. Look, stop. God's saying, Joshua's saying this, stop pretending everything's fine. Stop pretending you don't have chocolate sauce all over your hands and your face. Stop pretending because your pretending is killing you. Uh, when I was working in San Luis Obispo as an associate pastor, my life was an absolute train wreck. My son had had a stroke before he was born. He was having unstoppable seizures. My boss was extremely difficult to work with. Um, and, and so these two really, really, really painful things in my life. Um, my strategy uh, was, was just, it was completely broken. My strategy was to not trust God with either of those two things. My strategy was to go my own way. And my own way was that after April would go to bed, I would drink alcohol until all the pain went away. That was my strategy. And so um, I, I was mad at God for allowing me to, for allowing my son to have a stroke. I didn't trust him, trust God with my son. And so I thought it was all on me to try and figure it out. I was mad that my boss was a jerk. I was mad that God was allowing me to be in this place of difficulty. And so I didn't trust God with my work. And so in these two arenas, and I trusted God in other areas of my life, but in these two arenas, I didn't want to have anything to do with God. And my solution was the same, that I'm going to do it on my own. And my reward will be uh, to get a little bit tipsy at night. That'll be my reward. And so one spring, I got a chance to go to a pastor's conference in San Diego. And at the pastor's conference in San Diego was the Bishop of Rwanda. His name was John Ruchiahana. And the Bishop of Rwanda, this is the guy who started the truth and reconciliation justice system in Rwanda. Do you remember in 1994, the genocide between the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda? 800,000 people died. So how, does, how do these two people groups, these two tribes within the country of Rwanda, how do they reconcile? Because if, if everybody gets justice, then no one will live anymore, right? So the truth and reconciliation courts were based on one premise and one premise alone. If you did something wrong, you had to do one thing. You had to stop pretending and you had to be fully honest with what you did. Then you'd be given mercy and a chance to bring restitution to the families that you harmed. If you were not honest with what you did, you spent the rest of your life rotting in jail. So Bishop Ruchahana put together this whole thing. So there I was, 
And I, I signed up to speak with Bishop, Bishop, Bishop Ruchahana, and I had 15 minutes, 15 minutes with the spiritual giant. So here I am, this young pastor, and I said, look, I'm just going to tell him everything. So I walked in, and I sat down with Bishop Ruchahana, and I said, look, here's my hot mess. This is what happened to me. This is what I'm doing. What, what, what should I do? And he says something that I will never forget for the rest of my life. He said this, Andy, there is no halfway obedience. Now, Anne-Marie knows that last word there. It's a French word. Derriere. There's no halfway obedience. Because what I was trying to do is I was trying to make two choices at the same time. I was trying to serve one God, be faithful to Jesus, choose Jesus, be a pastor in Jesus' church, and at the exact same time, I didn't want to trust Jesus at all with all these different areas of my life, and so I needed some sort of other thing to make me happy, to comfort me, to bring me peace, and that happened to be, you know, whiskey, right? So that was, those were the choices that I was making, and because I was trying to do two things at once to serve two different gods, that choice was tearing me apart. And Bishop John said, there's no halfway obedience. You can't live like that. You've got to make a choice. Who will you serve? So Joshua has this hard word for his people, as it, like a parent would. And the people, they get it. And they say this. But the people answer Joshua, oh, no, okay. We'll serve the Lord. And Joshua says, you're witnesses to your own decision. You said it. You've chosen to serve the Lord. And they said, yep, okay. We're witnesses to what we've said. And so this covenant is created there. So let me ask you a question. What's your, what's your choice? Right now, what's your choice? What do, what do you choose? That's good. So what do you need to do as a result of that choice? So Joshua says this. All right, then, destroy the idols among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, okay, we'll serve the Lord. We'll obey him alone. So let me ask you, what's your next logical step? What do you need to do next? And here's the good news. The Holy Spirit has been talking to you every single day for the last months about this. Right? Right? It's like those kids' voices outside right now. You can do your best to ignore it, but it's still going to get in there. The Holy Spirit has told you over and over and over again, what's next for your life? And the question that you have today is, what choice will we make and will you move forward with it? So can we make a choice together? Here we go. Here's the choice. Here it is. I put it in really large font for you. This is a prayer. This is a choice that you're going to make today. Ready? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And when you forget, when you get discouraged, when you feel totally overwhelmed, remember the choice that Jesus has made for you, that he's chosen you, that he's adopted you and 
to his family because Jesus' choice actually works backwards. The Lord has chosen to serve you. He's brought you into his home, his family. Isn't that beautiful? That's the hope of the gospel. Jesus has chosen you. Now choose him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the choice that you've made to save us. And Jesus, we are so grateful for you. We're so grateful for you. We are convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, nor anything in all creation will separate us from your love. We're so grateful for you, Jesus. We've made a choice to serve you, to lead in our areas of responsibility, to our homes. We've made this choice today. And so, Holy Spirit, bless and seal this choice. We pray against all the enemy's plans to rob and take away from it, for, for us to dismiss it on our way home. No, Lord Jesus, we've made a choice. We've made a covenant with you. Thank you, Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Now stand for the benefit.